I'm Toby Leary from Cape Gunworks. I'm passionate about all things Second Amendment. While I love to shoot... Going hot. There is so much more to guns than just pulling the trigger. A free and armed society is a responsible and self-reliant one. Join us to talk all things guns, freedom, and self-defense. It isn't just about being armed. It's about being responsibly armed. So load and make ready. This is Rapid Fire. Welcome to Rapid Fire, your weekly 2A talk radio show sponsored by Vortex Optics and the USCCA. Make sure you follow along on the show each and every week at rapidfireradio.us. Sign up to be notified whenever we go live. You can also give us a call on the Rapid Fire line, which is 508-444-2120. That's 508-444-2120. You can leave us a message any time of the day or night or... Call us when we are live. You can also text the Rapid Fire line, 508-444-2120. I'm really glad you're here. And make sure you like and sub- subscribe on social media. Our handle is at Cape Gunworks and at Rapid Fire Radio, all one word, where you can f- like, subscribe, follow, share, and spread the news far and wide about our channels and our content because we need to get the news out there. We need to get the word out there about um, all kinds of Second Amendment news. And by the way, I just got another notice on Instagram that our content cannot be shared right now because four posts which violate the terms of service. Here it is. I'm reading it right now. Your account cannot be shown to non-followers. Your account and content won't appear in places like Explore, Search, Suggested Users, Reels, and Feed Recommendations. So basically, the only way you're going to find us is if you type in our entire handle, at Cape Gunworks or at Rapid Fire Radio. And the only way that other people are going to find us is if you share our content and like on our content and subscribe to our content and comment on our content. Oh my! I know that's a that's a breathful right there, but that's the way it is. So, um, with all that being said, we are going to dive in. We got a full day here, a full discussion on this new bill. If you haven't heard about it? It's a doozy, and it's called HD forty four twenty. It was read into the legislative session by none other than Michael S. Day's office, who was the one who put on the listening tour. And um, the listening tour is a, was a, and now that I see it for what it was, it was a sham. It was a check off the box. It was a, um, we need to put on the appearance of we're trying to make the world a better place in Massachusetts for our constituents. But at the end of the day, and overwhelmingly, I would say that there were more pro-gun people than 
anti-gun people at these. But it didn't matter because the fix was in. The jig was up. The, um, the cards were being dealt from under the table. And I was told that nothing was on the table and nothing was off the table. Everything was up for discussion. We're going to look at this from a top-down house-cleaning modernization of firearms laws that pertains to Massachusetts. Well, guess what? All of that was a bunch of hooey, as we expected, because um, because the what the legislature has introduced, Michael Day's office has introduced, is worse than anything we could have conjured up on our own. If you had asked me, and I actually made a prediction back in June or July of last year that, guys, even though Massachusetts has made no move like like New York did, like New Jersey has, like Oregon, Washington State, uh, to bring their laws in compliance with uh, the current licensing schemes or the current uh, mandate by the Supreme Court to get your house in order. Uh, they made some adjustments on the application and some emergency stuff, but that was about it. And because none of that happened, I was like, don't think for a second that Massachusetts isn't going to jump into the, throw its hat into the gun banning ring. I believe it's going to get worse before it get, gets better. That's what my prediction was. But I had no idea that this bill would be introduced in the way that it's been introduced. Now, I called Michael Day's office this afternoon. Um, I'm hesitant to release the content because my producer says I didn't tell him I was recording it, even though I did say I'm from Rapid Fire Radio. But because I didn't tell him I was recording it, maybe I won't release it. But what was amazing to me was the guy on the phone that I was talking to didn't even know half the stuff that I brought up about it. And he's like, oh, wow, well, how, how does that affect you as a gun store? I'm like, how does it affect me? Um, it'll put me out of business. That's how it affects me. And it'll put every other gun store in Massachusetts out of business. Well, how so? Because we can't sell anything based on this law. So let's roll up our sleeves and dig into this a little bit. If you want to be on the show, uh, by all means, give us a call, 508-444-2120, um, and we'll read your text. We'll jump on the chat and get your questions there as well. Uh, Bird Runner says that this bill was written long before the listening tour, and he's probably right about that. They've been researching and writing that bill since the enforcement notice opinion and didn't scare everyone into submission, and they the people followed the letter of the law and didn't hide it in a hole. Yeah, you're probably right there as well, Skilled, but interestingly enough, huh, this is unbelievable. You know, the Attorney General sent out their enforcement notice, her enforcement notice. Uh, this is under Healy when she was the Attorney General and said, basically, I think you're in violation of the law. You're a felon and waiting if you've bought any of these guns, blah, blah, blah. But because you did it unknowingly, we're not going to prosecute you. However, we still reserve the right to prosecute you. But this is the way it is. You can't have any copy or duplicate of any enumerated gun on the assault weapons ban. Well, under this new HD 4420, they're 
literally saying that they are going to introduce Maura Healy's opinion and now make it the law of the land as far as uh, compatibility and uh, similarity to any enumerated gun on this list. And so I'm going to read to you that in a minute, some of those enumerated guns. But before I do that, I want to read to you the sentiment behind it. Um, I had a congressman send this to me, and I, I think you guys will appreciate it if I can pull it up here on my phone. So, uh, yeah, here we go. Earlier today, I filed HD 4420, an act modernizing firearms laws. Just over a year ago, the United States Supreme Court issued a ruling in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin in which they deemed part of our firearms licensing laws unconstitutional. Thanks to Speaker Mariano, we are in the House. We're prepared and acted quickly to make the required changes to our statutes while preserving our licensing system. This effort, however, revealed the need to examine the challenges to firearm safety and have emerged since we enacted the 2014's Landmark Act relative to the reduction of gun violence. I'll continue with this after the break. Um, You're not going to believe some of the stuff that was said, but uh, I'm Toby Leary. This is Rapid Fire. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Carrying a firearm for personal protection has never been more popular than it is today. The USCCA can help fortify your home, sharpen your awareness, and develop your defensive plan Go to uscca.co forward slash rapid fire to sign up. Your family's safety and security is your responsibility. Go to uscca.co forward slash rapid fire to sign up for a USCCA membership and get special training, legal advice, and legal protection you and your family need. Vortex offers the very best optics specifically made for shooters with rugged construction designed for extreme environments. Vortex Optics build quality ensures accurate, reliable, and repeatable performance every time you squeeze the trigger. Add fully multi-coated lenses and nitrogen purging, and you have a quality optic with an extremely reasonable price tag. That is the Vortex difference. Come into Cape Gunworks to see the full line of Vortex Optics today. Welcome back to Rapid Fire, your weekly show all things guns, freedom, Second Amendment, and self-defense. Today's poll question, which you can find at rapidfireradio.us or on Twitter under Rapid Fire Radio, all one word, is will the new gun regulations proposed in Massachusetts Bill HD 4420 be ratified? Yes, no, or not yes in its current form. But yes, but not in its current form. So it's going to go through committees, see some changes, and it will be passed. So go ahead and vote in our poll. Last week's poll was, what do you think Hunter Biden's punishment should be for lying on a 4473? Oh, my. 50% of you said jail time. 0% of you said probation is right. They got it right. And 50% said 4473 is unconstitutional, which is what my take was on it. This week, I'm going to say... 
uh, that I do believe that the bill will pass, but not in its current form. I think it'll undergo some probably pretty major changes before it's finally uh, signed into law. Um, and that goes along with what I was saying before the break, how it's going to get worse before it's going to get better. I don't think any of this stands up to constitutional uh, scrutiny, so it's not going to be long-term. It's going to be short-term. But anyway, here we go. This is uh, what Michael S. Day's office had to say. Responsible gun owners are frustrated by what they see as contradictory and confusing statutory language. Amen to that. And if that's all the bill was about, you'd have my full unwavering support. Untraceable and illegal firearms are flooding our downtowns. Loopholes in our laws allow increasingly sophisticated criminals to avoid prosecution. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think that has any basis for truth in it whatsoever. It has nothing to do with loopholes in our laws that criminals are being to exploit our gun laws. It's the fact that they're not charged with gun crime when it happens or charged with illegal possession of a firearm with a mandatory minimum one-year sentence as an add-on to whatever other sentence they get. So because of that, they don't run concurrent sentences in the state. It always gets thrown out. Um, so hearing of these challenges, Speaker Mariano chose to address them directly the bill filed today is a re- reflection of the legislative proposals pending before us. Your comments and ideas, the voices of our constituents, and a review of other states' and counties' approaches. Uh, oh, actually, not counties. Other states' and countries' approaches. While wide-ranging, its overall impact is designed to reduce illegal firearm use and violence on our streets to increase safety in our communities. He also, his office also released this statement. One of the most important duties we have as lawmakers is to ensure the health and safety of our residents. And neither a rogue Supreme Court nor increasingly sophisticated criminal activity will stop this legislature from meeting those duties, Day said in a statement on Monday. Now, that alone needs a little bit of unpacking. The most important duty you have as lawmakers lawmakers is to protect and uphold the Constitution of Massachusetts and the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, period. So this whole bill flies in the face of that. So you are not doing your duty to try to ensure the health and safety of your residents by breaking your oath of office and trying to go back on what your true important duty is and role is to uphold and preserve the Constitution. Um, and I reject you laying the the sophisticated criminal activity, in as you said in this statement, or loopholes in our laws that increase... Uh, sophisticated criminals to avoid prosecution. None of that is my fault. None of that is any other gun owner's fault in the state of Massachusetts. All of that fault lies at the feet of woke and uh, Soros-funded mayors, attorney generals, 
and district attorneys in the state of Massachusetts that refuse to prosecute criminals to the fullest extent of the law. It also comes down on the hands and feet at the feet of judges who give these criminals and repeat offenders uh, a, a light prison sentence for their actions. So that is where the fault lies. The fault lies in the people who are actually committing criminal activity out of no lack of fear whatsoever of going into prison for a very long time. They know the system is a joke. They know the justice system is a it's a the laughing stock of the nation, just like the ten or twelve other extremely violent cities that are run horribly and restrict lawful access to gun gun to guns, but yet trivialize and plea bargain away career criminals and violent criminals from having to face real jail time. Uh, so let's get into this bill. Uh, inside scoop, the summary of HD 4420. An act modernizing firearms laws. It consolidates and reorganizes current firearms licensing sections into a single unified process with consistent standards and procedures for all firearms licensing, including license to sell. All fire, uh, excuse me, removes semi automatic rifles or shotguns from a newly created long gun permit for 18 to 21 year olds while still preserving their right to own and possess rifles and shotguns. Funny, I didn't know that the Bill of Rights differentiated between types of weapons. It's amazing how 18-year-olds can go to war for our country and shoot uh, machine guns, shoot artillery pieces, fly $60 million fighter jets. They can drive tanks. They can use ordnance. They can uh, fire massive surface-to-air missiles, and everything else. But yet, they can be in this state, and they're only allowed to have the right to keep a pump-action or a bolt-action or a slide-action gun. They can't have anything semi-automatic, whether it be rifle or shotgun or pistol. Let's move on. Uh, Increases penalties for failure to report firearms loss or theft. And ironically, it's always punishing the, the law-abiding gun owner. It's never punishing the criminal. Like, So the guy who has a gun legally, and if somebody steals it and he doesn't notice, guess what? Increased penalties on you for failing to uh, report that in a timely manner. Um, it moves dealer inspection responsibilities and oversight to the Massachusetts State Police to ensure uniformity of inspections, clarifies and standardizes rules on firearm transport and carry to comport with rec- uh, constitutional requirements and allows carry on recreational vehicles. Hey, a win, a one little bone they throw us, which I don't know why we even took that away from us in the first place. Um, removes... Uh, let's see here. Uh, removes contradictory, confusing, duplicative, and unconstitutional language. Ooh, that's music to my ears. From definitions and references, non-resident and temporary licenses, defense 
spray, permits, and exemptions. Uh, then it talks about uh, Violence Protection Commission. They're going to impanel a whole new legislative com- commission to examine the existing government funding structure for violence prevention services in the Commonwealth. So can use taxpayer money to study where violence comes from, I guess. And I'm sure they're going to lay it at the feet of all uh, gun owners. Skipping down, it says assault-style firearms. Remember that term, assault-style firearms. And large-capacity magazines. Updates general laws to reflect attorney general's opinion regarding lookalike assault weapons. Updates Ah! definition with contemporary categorization tests and lists of firearms. Restricts use and transfer of pre-ban large capacity magazines. Firearms Control Advisory Board. uh, So they're going to appoint, adds appointees from attorney general. Speaker of the House, Senate President, House and State Minority Leaders. So that's, uh, oh, and Massachusetts State Police. So that's five new appointees, none of which are representatives from the gun community. Surprise, surprise. Uh, they don't want our input. Adds assault-style firearms roster and tasks board with conducting regular reviews. Requires EOPS to update uh, which is the Executive Office of Public Safety, uh, to update rosters for large-capacity firearms, large-capacity feeding devices, assault-style firearms, and firearms approved for sale and use in the Commonwealth at least three times a year. Right now, they're required to do it four times a year, but now they're going to knock it down to three times a year because that's too much for them. They're already only doing it about twice a year, so they're going to try and up their game, even though they're required to do it four times a year. Now they're going to do it three times a year, so making their job a little easier. Prohibited spaces. It'll prohibit all firearms possession on government administration buildings, polling locations, educational institutions, and get this, on all private property without the consent of the property owner. Can you say unconstitutional? I bet you can, boys and girls. And that's exactly where this is headed. We have an exciting new pistol training series. Pistol 1 is our basic class. Pistol 2 continues to build on basic skills. Pistol 3 is drawing from the holster. And Pistol 4 puts it all together. Go to capegunworks.com and check out the calendar for these new classes. You're listening to Rapid Fire. More of this after the break. I'll be right back. hard to leave shots like these to chance. Now you never have to compromise performance again. Federal Premium Heavy Bismuth hits ducks and upland birds with 9.6 gram per cubic centimeter pellets sourced from heavy shot. 22% denser than steel. More energy downrange. Launched by the Flight Control Flex Wad, Heavy Bismuth patterns consistently and is safe in all shotguns. Loaded in the USA by Federal Ammunition. Fire, your weekly show, all things guns, freedom, Second Amendment, and self-defense. Tell us what you think about all of this nonsense going on in the Statehouse. Call us, 508-444-2120, if you want to weigh in on the subject. And this week's winner, 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 chicken dinner. No, not exactly. You won the Blackout Coffee, the 2A Guns and Gadgets blend by Blackout Coffee. 
Brian C. Look for an email from us. You're getting a whole pack of coffee. It smells nice and fresh, and you're going to love it just like I do. And this week, we're giving away some tick tubes you can put around the yard. They're made by Thermocell, a Massachusetts-based company, which is a great company, by the way. Uh, I use these at my house all the time, and if you're anyone, if you're like me, you got bunnies all over the place, guess what they carry? Loads of ticks. And if you have dogs and cats and kids playing in the yard, you want to get those ticks under control. So this is a great way to do it. These tick tubes, tick control tubes, treats 11,000 square feet of your yard. So sign up to win, and you could be the lucky person. Go to rapidfireradio.us to sign up. And uh, we'll pull the winner on next week's show. This week's uh, code, discount code, for those of you playing along at home, is FREEDOM. If you want a special savings off your entire order at capegunworks.com, type in FREEDOM as the checkout code, and you will get a very special deal from us. All right, let's dive back into this. So this uh, also has firearms data reports. So the... The legislature is looking at placing blame squarely on the gun owner. There's no other way around it. And uh, they are basically banning the carrying of firearms in most public places like we just read about, unless you have expressed written permission. And it's also aiming to fight the rise of so-called ghost guns. You heard him say that, you know, these unserialized firearms are flooding our streets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the... The way the reason I say they're looking to lay the blame at the feet of the law-abiding responsible gun owner is because of look at where they're putting the, the penalties. They're putting them on uh, if you get a lot have a lost or stolen gun. They're also uh, establishing an enhanced tracing system to track guns used during the commission of a crime. Modernize the firearms registration system and make firearms data available to academics and policymakers. So uh, they want the academia to be able to study this data. They want policymakers to be able to have it at their fingertips. They want to enhance and modernize the registration system as if it's not already pretty uh, <laughs> over overbearing, if you will, or unconstitutional. And they want to enhance tracing system so they can literally figure out who this gun came from, where did it originate, what were the stops along the way before a said criminal had it and used it, so that we have a hook to hang our hat on. Because we all know they're not going to go after the criminal who actually is the perp of the crime. They're looking to trace this thing back to uh, where they can lay the blame, whether it was at the sale or at the manufacturer or at the person who didn't even know it was stolen. So um, it expands the definition of firearm to include its frame or receiver and its barrel in order to monitor and penalize the illegal purchase and manufacture of firearms. It requires serialization of all firearms, including any privately made firearms, criminalizes the possession, creation, and transfer of all untraceable firearms, Updates and expands definition of undetectable and covert firearms. So one of the things that we did have a luxury of for a long time in this state was because of our very limited firearms roster, the only way you could actually get a gun that wasn't on that roster is if you bought it, bought a frame for it because Massachusetts didn't recognize it as a firearm. Well, abracadabra, 
here they go. They're now recognizing firearms and frames as firearms in the state of Massachusetts. Oh, and barrels, by the way. So now barrels are going to be a regulated item. I don't, I don't even understand how this is going to work. Um, I don't think they do either. It is really unsustainable. This has created a monster. Um, re- registration, reporting, and tracing. Uh, it updates the required requirements of firearms and firearm transactions into one state database maintained by, of course, the CGIS, the Criminal Justice Information Service, including all privately made firearms and firearms imported by new residents of the Commonwealth, criminalizes any failure to register firearms. So you will report your gun or else you will be stuffed into a government cage at the end of a gun under the threat of incarceration. Requires law enforcement to upload crime gun data into the state database, which will automatically populate the federal ATF system for interstate tracing purposes. Clarifies processes around surrendering a firearm to law enforcement. Uh, Updates the minimum training curriculum required for a license to carry to include an injury prevention and harm reduction education, active shooter and emergency response training. Applicable laws relating to the use of force and de-escalation and disengagement tactics required all applicants for license to carry uh, to complete live firearms training uh, and pass a uniform written exam created by the state police required local licensing authorities to attend trainings on their licensing and reporting responsibilities created by EOPS. Harassment Prevention Order and Extreme Risk Protection Order Enhancements. They're basically going to criminalize you if you don't use the EOPS system here and use Extreme Risk Protection Orders or High Risk Protection Orders. Harassment Protection Orders. I don't even know what a Harassment Protection Order is. Uh, Updates HPOs, Harassment Protection Orders, to be consistent with the Abuse Prevention Orders under 209A and allow courts to order dispossession of licenses, permits, and firearms contemporaneously with the issuance of an HPO. So you get a Harassment Protection Order. Someone doesn't like the way you looked at them, they file an HPO, and now you're giving up your guns until it's all sorted out. Enables family members, law enforcement, school administrators, healthcare providers, and employers to petition courts for an ERPO, Extreme Risk Protection Order, clarifies due process issuance of warrants to assist law enforcement in the collection of respondents' firearms upon the issuance of an ERPO, establishes a legislative commission to study emerging firearms technology, including smart gun and micro-stamping technologies, and to submit a report with its findings and recommendations. More on that later. Criminalizes both the act of turning any firearm into an automatic firearm as well as the possession of parts which facilitate such modifications. Updates already banned trigger modifications. I have no idea what that means. What is an already banned trigger modification? Because I have no clue what that means. Uh, Updates and strengthens criminalization of discharge of firearm within 500 feet of a dwelling without the consent of owner. Criminalizes intentional discharge of a firearm which strikes a dwelling or building in use. Intoxicated firearm carry and aligns standards with the driving while intoxicated if you're hunting or whatever. Um, So I said more on that later because if you look at HD 4420 on page 80. 
3 of 140, starting on line 1729. Section 129, firearms without safety devices. The liability and the exceptions. Line 1730, any firearm as defined in section 121 sold within the Commonwealth without a safety device designed to prevent the discharge of such firearm by unauthorized users and approved by the Colonel of State Police, including but not limited to mechanical locks or devices designed to recognize and authorize or otherwise allow the firearm to be discharged only by its owner or authorized user by solenoid use limitation device, key activated or combination trigger or handle locks, radio frequency tags, automated fingerprint identification system, or voice recognition, provided that such device is commercially available and shall be defective and the sale of such firearms shall constitute a breach of warranty under Section 2-314, Chapter 106, and an unfair, here's the key, an unfair and deceptive trade act or practice under Section 2 of Chapter 93A. If you guys don't know what Chapter 2 of 93A is, it is unfair and deceptive business practice. So if you sell a gun that does not meet that definition, you have willingly and fraudulently tried to deceive the public at large in a way that would cause them harm. And if harm is caused, this is what happens. Any entity responsible for the manufacture, importation, or sale as an inventory item or consumer good, both as defined in Section 9-102, Chapter 106, of such a firearm that does not include or incorporate such a device shall be individually and jointly liable to any person who sustains personal injury or property damage resulting from the failure to include or incorporate such a device. If death results from such personal injury, such entitles shall be uh, entities shall be liable in an amount including but not limited to that provided under Chapter 229. Contributory or comparative negligence shall not be valid defenses to an action brought under this section in conjunction with Section 2 of 93A. And by the way, oh, no. 93A is subject to tripling. And that doesn't mean, let's say there was a million dollar uh, judgment. That doesn't mean it's now three million. It's $3 million plus the original $1 million judgment. So it's actually a quadruple the original amount. It is subject to that under Chapter 93A. And anyone who manufactures, sells, or imports anything without one of those smart devices. So it basically effectively bans all handguns in the Massachusetts, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I'm going to get to some of your questions on the other side. Don't forget you can take private one-on-one lessons. And very, very soon you'll be able to do small group lessons. Like a semi-private lesson with friends. It's going to be awesome. Go to capegunworks.com forward slash privates. Toby Leary will be right back. A firearm for personal protection has never been more popular than it is today. The USCCA can help fortify your home, sharpen your awareness, and develop your defensive plan 
Go to uscca.co forward slash rapid fire to sign up. Your family safety and security is your responsibility. Go to uscca.co forward slash rapid fire to sign up for a USCCA membership and get special training, legal advice, and legal protection you and your family need. Vortex offers the very best optics specifically made for shooters with rugged construction designed for extreme environments. Vortex Optics build quality ensures accurate, reliable, and repeatable performance every time you squeeze the trigger. Add fully multi-coated lenses and nitrogen purging, and you have a quality optic with an extremely reasonable price tag. That is the Vortex difference. Come into Cape Gunworks to see the full line of Vortex Optics today. Hey everybody, Toby here from Rapid Fire Radio, and I'm happy to present to you the Gun of the Week. This week it is the Nemo Arms Battle Light in 22LR. Wow, a 22AR you say? That's exactly what I say. So Nemo Arms has come out with this phenomenal 22LR rifle. It's lightweight, it's super high quality, just like everything that Nemo produces, and it's got a full-length handguard with pick a penny rail on top and as well as uh, M-Lock rail on the three, six, and nine position so you can put M-Lock rails wherever you want. Uh, fully handy. I know some of you thought I was gonna say fully semi-automatic, which it is, it's fully semi-automatic. So uh, this is a semi-automatic 22 rifle in an AR style platform with Ambi controls, Ambi mag release, Ambi safety, Ambi charging handle. And guess what? A bolt hold open on the last round, which is unique to 22 AR style rifles. So, pretty awesome. Uh, really happy to have it. It's got the Magpul furniture, and it happens to be this week's Rapid Fire Gun of the Week. So, you want to go over to rapidfireradio.us, scroll down until you see the banner of Gun of the Week, and click on it and use GOW at checkout if you want a very special savings off this sweet rifle here at Cape Gunworks, and we'll see you on Rapid Fire Radio. I'm Toby Leary. Thanks so much. Welcome back, and by the way, all of that stuff I just read about the uh, handguns, there's one exemption, and that is if you use the gun for self-defense and if somebody uses that gun to inflict themselves, they will not be held liable. There's one other exemption, and I bet you could guess what it is. This section shall not apply to any firearm distributed to an officer of any law enforcement agency or any member of the armed forces of the United States or the organized militia of the Commonwealth, provided, however, that such person is authorized to acquire, possess, carry such a firearm for the lawful performance of his or her duties, provided that such firearm is so distributed and distributed solely for use in connection with such duties. So they're taking away they're taking away the law enforcement quote unquote loophole. So law enforcement excuse me, officers won't be able to just buy guns for their own personal use. They're making sure that they are tied to their official duties as a police officer. And but ironically, police departments are exempt. Why are police departments exempt from this onerous 
smart gun technology? Why, what, why isn't what's good for the goose good for the gander? And if this makes everybody safer, why aren't they leading the way with this technology in our local law enforcement departments and saying, hey, we're going to set the tone, we're going to set the example, we're going to lead from the front, and we're going to ask of our constituents to do this, so we're going to do it first. We're going to implement it, put it into place, and we're going to roll it out, and we're going to go with it. The problem is, you know, as well as I know, that, that this technology doesn't even exist, so they're going to just say, hey, you know, well, you're stuck with what you got. Um, they've done it before, and they'll do it again. I'm going to read to you quickly a list of, and I'm sorry, this is all just me reading. Game over. Uh, You can at least see that I'm somewhat literate, although I do have my new eyeballs on today, which I'm sure there's going to be some fun in the comments about that. Um, Man, time is flying, so I apologize. Uh, But tell us what you think. Give us a call, 508-444-2120. And if you want to get that gun of the week, Go to rapidfireradio.us, click on the Gun of the Week button in the banner, and use G-O-W at checkout. It is a sweet, sweet gun. And will it be able to be sold if something like this passes? I don't know. So you might want to get what you can while you can. I'll be right back. I'm Toby Leary. personal defense network for years we've been the internet's leading destination for high quality information on equipment training and your preparation for personal or home defense our videos are meant for those who are serious about enhancing their ability to use efficient techniques to survive a dynamic critical incident but now we've stepped things up even higher we've added hours of high quality training videos just for our premium members This content takes the body of work that is the Personal Defense Network up to an even higher level. Our goal with the Personal Defense Network is simple. Provide you with the highest quality video learning tips that are available. You'll find them inside of the premium membership. All you have to do is choose how to get started, and I'll see you on the inside. Welcome back to Rapid Fire, your weekly show all things guns, freedom, Second Amendment, and self-defense. Phone number is 508-444-2120. It's 508-444-2120. And today's poll question is, with the new gun regulations being proposed in Massachusetts, will each bill, which will House Bill HD 4420, be signed into law? Yes, no, or yes, but not in its current form. So the results of the poll are 25% of you say yes, and 75% of you say yes, but not in its current form. So You don't need an AR-15. You are uh, 100% tracking that you think something like this is going to pass, and I couldn't agree with you more. All right. Um, I might try to sneak in some extra time here before going to the second hour, um, but just because I want to get through this very important uh, stuff. So if you want to give me a call if for any reason, we'll just tack that on to the end of this hour. Um, but let's talk about what the following uh, definitions. You've heard assault weapon touted in the news many, many times over the years. Well, guess what? We do have an assault weapons ban in this state, Massachusetts, and it's a direct mirror image of the 94 federal assault weapons ban. We've been living under that tyranny since 1994. Um, there is a 
bill right now that is before I'm not a, not a bill a case challenging this. Uh, I know the National Association of Gun Rights, and I believe Andrew Kucher's law firm is involved in this. So I, I want to try and get an update out of them. But the the term assault weapon is being replaced. It's going to be assault style firearm, which will be defined as any firearm which is A, a semi-automatic rifle with the capacity to accept a detachable feeding device and includes any of the following features. All right. This is a new test compared to the 94 assault weapon. So A, if it's a semi-automatic with a detachable mag and it has any of the following a folding telescopic thumb hole, that's a new one, or detachable, that's a new one, stock. And what the heck is detachable? Why? Does that mean I can take it off with a screwdriver or a wrench or a socket or a sawzall? Like, I don't get what the definition of detachable is here. Uh, or a stock that is otherwise foldable or adjustable in any manner that operates to reduce the length. So I guess like if you have a rifle that has a couple inches of adjustment for length of pull, that makes it an assault weapon um, that operates to reduce the length, size, and other dimensions or otherwise enhances the concealability of the weapon. Number two, a pistol if it has a pistol grip, a forward grip, or a second hand grip or protruding grip that can be held by the non-trigger hand. So if it has a pistol grip, it's an assault style weapon. So there you go. Right now, basically every modern sporting rifle we sell in this shop, except for an M1A and an, a Mini 14, the non-tactical version, um, is basically banned. and But it gets better, or should I say much worse. Uh, the A forward grip or second hand grip or a protruding grip that can be held by the non-trigger hand, does that include angled foregrip? I don't know, but it says it. If it has a threaded barrel or, get this, a barrel shroud... Doesn't a stock constitute a barrel shroud if I can hold a stock? Uh, a semi-automatic pistol with the capacity to accept a detachable feeding device and includes any of the following features. The capacity to accept a feeding device that attaches to the pistol outside of the pistol grip. So if it's mounted anywhere else than inside the pistol grip, it's an assault weapon. If it has a second hand grip or a protruding grip that can be held by the non-trigger hand, it's an assault weapon. A threaded barrel makes it an assault weapon. So all the guns that we currently sell, like the FN 509s, the HK 45s, the uh, etc. etc., will all be considered assault weapons now. A barrel shroud, a manufactured weight of 50 ounces or more when unloaded, or if it has a buffer tube a stabilizing brace or similar component that protrudes horizontally behind the pistol grip and is designed or redesigned to allow or facilitate a firearm to be fired from the shoulder. Holy cow. A semi-automatic shotgun with the ability uh, 
with the capacity to accept a detachable feeding device and includes any of the following features, a folding telescopic or detachable stock, a pistol grip, bird's head grip, or forward grip, a semi-automatic version of any fully automatic firearm. Well, that's interesting because <laughs> that basically rounds out the selection of anything else out there. But any firearm listed on the assault-style firearm roster created pursuant to Section 128A, which hasn't even come out yet. And then all of the following rifles. I'm going to bore you all of the ones that we already know are on the list. Any AK variant, any AR variant, including AR-10s, by the way. Um, a lot of the uh, 22LR carbines, that any uh, like the Armalite M15 22LR carbine. Um, then the it goes on to say the Bushmaster ACR, the, uh, let's see, the DSAs, uh, HK MR556, the, um, which is an AR, so I, we haven't sold those. Um, they've kind of sprinkled in some non. AR-15s into the huge extensive list of AR-15s. The Noreen Firearms BN-36 rifle. Um, the SIG MCX is a new addition. The SIG 516 is a new addition. Um, the Ruger SR-556, which are basically ARs. Um, and then it gets into a whole bunch of new categories. The Barrett M107 and the M82A1. These are literally solutions in search of a problem because no one, I, to my knowledge, has ever even used one of these in a commission of a murder or a crime or a mass shooting event in the state of Massachusetts. Here's a good one. The Beretta CX-4 Storm, which is by far one of the most neutered rifles on the face of the earth. Doesn't have a threaded muzzle, doesn't have a muzzle device of any kind, doesn't have a bayonet lug. Uh, it's basically a monolithic stock in a pistol caliber carbine with a thumbhole stock and a fixed stock that's not adjustable or detachable in any way, shape, or form. But now it'll be an enumerated weapon on the assault weapons ban. The Calico Liberty Series, the Set Me Sporters, all the Daewoos, the FN Scar, Why? FNC, uh, the PS90, the FS2000, um, Unbelievable. Uh, the Feather Industries 89, the Galil, uh, which was already on there. All the high point carbines. We sell a ton of these guns. High point carbines. All because they have a pistol grip. Uh, the HK 91, 93, 94, PSG 1, and the HK USC. The USC is like the uh, Beretta CX4 Storm. It's got a thumb hole stock, no muzzle device, a 10 round magazine. No bayonet lug, no evil detachable folding, collapsible stock features. Uh, but, you know, they're trying to take that away. And it's a pistol caliber carbine. The IWI Tavor, the Galil Ace Rifle, Keltec Sub 2K, SU 16, RFB, the SIG uh, 550s, the 551, and the MCX, the Steyr Aug, the Mini-14 tactical rifles, uh, all Thompson rifles, so any of the Thompson submachine gun clones, forget about it. 
any Uzi clones, Valmays, uh, Weaver Arms, the Linda Carbine, and then all the pistols that you'd, you would think. HKS P89, uh, Intratex, Galil Ace, uh, the Caltech PLR 16, all Mac styles, the five, Sig 556, um, all the Thompson pistols, like the Thompson submachine gun style pistols, all the Uzis, micro Uzis, Frankie Law and Spaz 12s, all the Sega 12s in, as far as shotguns, any shotgun with a revolving cylinder, so that Rossi 410 gauge, not happening. Any belt-fed semi-automatic firearms, including the TNW and the FN M249. Uh, any copy or duplicate of any firearm listed or meeting the standards in section, blah, blah, blah. They put all that Attorney General's regulations lingo in there uh, or enforcement notice. Any firearm replicas or duplicates of such weapons lawfully possessed on September 13, 1994. Or uh, any weapon that is uh, that shall not include. So pre ninety four pre bans will still be allowed, but I'm sure you're stuck with them. I don't know if you'll be able to sell them or not. So anyway, um, there's so much more to this um, bill than meets the eye, uh, and I just want to breeze through your comments. I know we broke down a lot, and I've been ignoring you guys, but. Um, I called Michael Day's office about this, and they want the list of guns that I can currently sell that I won't be able to sell as a result of this bill passing. So um, I'm going to do that. I'm going to send that. Um, and uh, But basically, from what I see, it bans any semi-automatic firearm with a detachable magazine and any semi-automatic rifle with a detachable magazine and one other feature like a pistol grip. Um Plus the whole enumerated list of guns. Because I was, I, at one point, I'm like, oh, wait, they didn't mention the CZ Bren 2. Ha ha. We got one gun that we'll still be able to sell. But then it meets the definition of assault style weapon with the pistol grip. So you're screwed there, too. So it's basically going to do away with all semi automatic rifles except for M1As, you know, the uh, M1 Garands and the M1 Carbine and the Ruger Mini 14. I can't really think of anything else unless we remanufacture said weapons with a different operating system in some sort of Monte Carlo stock. It's just crazy. It's insane. Uh, this is HD 4420 Skunk Works um, that has been introduced on Monday by Michael Day's office. Uh, so I highly recommend everybody call the State House. Give Representative Michael Day a call. Um, the number is 617-722-29. I'm sorry, 2396. I'll dump that in the chat. 617-722-2396. And uh, we will be right back after this. I'm Toby Leary. This is Rapid Fire. Thank you for tuning in, and remember, the show is ending here, but it goes on for another hour. So tune in at Rapid Fire Radio or call the text line, Rapid Fire Line, 508-444-4, I'm 
sorry, 508-444-2120. Go to rapidfireradio.us and ask questions. Freedom will always be on the right side of history. Stay tuned. We'll see you on the uh, on the other side. We got Mark Smith in the second hour. So stay tuned for that. I'm Toby Leary. We'll be right back. I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. Welcome to Personal Defense Network. For years, we've been the Internet's leading destination for high-quality information on equipment, training, and your preparation for personal or home defense. Our videos are meant for those who are serious about enhancing their ability to use efficient techniques to survive a dynamic critical incident. But now we've stepped things up even higher. We've added hours of high-quality training videos just for our premium members. This content takes the body of work that is the Personal Defense Network up to an even higher level. Our goal with the Personal Defense Network is simple. Provide you with the highest quality video learning tips that are available. You'll find them inside of the premium membership. All you have to do is choose how to get started, and I'll see you on the inside. Welcome to Rapid Fire, your 2A talk radio show sponsored by Vortex Optics and the USCCA. Make sure you tune in each and every week at rapidfireradio.us to join the conversation. And now you can call or text the Rapid Fire line, 508-444-2120. Make sure you like and subscribe on all the social media platforms that you enjoy out there. Our handle is at Kate Gunworks and at Rapid Fire Radio. Everywhere you get your social media, we are there. And I'm really happy to have on the line with us right now uh, Mark Smith from Four Boxes Diner. He's a great uh, Second Amendment advocate and lawyer who um, is also an author, and he's part of the Supreme Court Bar, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. How are you today? Hey, Toby. I'm glad to finally be on. It's an honor. Mm. Well, it's my pleasure to have you. So um, real quick, I, I was wondering if you could just, you know, Maybe get into the weeds a little bit. Some of the best part of your content is you approach things from a, a much different angle from being a lawyer yourself. So you, you have the whole legal aspect of it where the rest of us laymen are kind of just throwing spaghetti against the wall and every once in a while a piece sticks. But, you know, you know the nuance of law and how it affects us and and especially at the Supreme Court case, uh, Supreme Court level. And you, you were talking about uh, a case that may or may not be granted cert that we should be paying attention to. So if you don't mind, uh, give us a little update on that. 
Sure, Toby. Yeah, you know, at the Four Boxes Diner, I try to provide people the super inside baseball, if you will, of of Second Amendment litigation, Second Amendment activity. Uh, You know, a lot of times what's in the newspaper is at the end of the day, not that important in the grand scheme of things. And certainly when you deal with court cases, it's extremely complicated as what's going on, what is a real loss, what is a real win, and so on. So I try to bring people kind of what I consider what's really going on in the court system, because, you know, I have sort of an unusual background at a very high level of law to kind of, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff. And what's interesting today, you make a great point, Toby. So this morning, there's a very big deal, maybe a huge deal out of the United States Supreme Court as of 9.30 a.m. New York time. There is a case called uh, the United States versus Rahimi. Now, the United States versus Rahimi, a lot of people have probably heard about. This was a case out of Texas and Louisiana in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And in that case, it was a three-judge panel that concluded that a major aspect of federal gun control law, 18 U.S.C., 922G8, I believe, dealing with prohibited persons, Mm -hmm. that a major part of that law was unconstitutional under the Second Amendment, specifically under the methodology that the Supreme Court laid out for interpreting the Second Amendment in Heller first in 2008 and then in Bruin in 2022. Now, this is a very big deal because what the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said in ruling in favor of the Second Amendment, they said, look, Second Amendment is a fundamental right on par with the right to life and the right to liberty. Mm-hmm. And here you have a situation where an individual, and we're going to talk about why Merrick Garland's pushing this case in a second. But here you have a situation, Mr. Rahimi, who has lost, who, who, who was convicted of a felony under federal law because he was the subject of a domestic restraining order mm-hmm. that was entered by agreement without an attorney being present. And as a result of that civil order, he subsequently possessed a firearm, was caught with it, and they said, you are going to prison. And the challenge was whether or not under 18 U.S.C. 922-G8, whether or not that was facially unconstitutional. Under Bruin, the reason why the, the, the Fifth Circuit said yes is because at the time of our founding, you could not lose your gun rights for life. You could not lose your gun rights for any real period of time at the time of the founding simply because of any sort of civil matter. The only way you might lose your gun rights is for some potentially criminal matter, but not a civil matter. So the Fifth Circuit said, well, here's a civil domestic restraining order that sort of entered willy-nilly all over the country in almost all matrimonial cases, family court cases, domestic fights over children. And this can't be the basis for losing a fundamental right. So the Fifth Circuit says, yeah, this violates the Second Amendment. So what happened, and this is the critical thing uh, for your viewers and listeners to understand, Toby, is that Merrick Garland and the Biden administration sensed or you know smelled blood in the water, if you will, because the actual defendant in that case, Mr. Rahimi, at least according to the record, is sort of an odious character. And what I mean by that is there was a lot of allegations and evidence in the record that he did misuse firearms in various ways. He did commit some violent related crimes and whatnot. So in terms of being a poster child for the next Second Amendment case, Mr. Rahimi does not appear to be a good poster child for that. So Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice under Joe Biden decide to rush rush this loss um, to the Supreme Court, seeking emergency certiorari from the Supreme Court, saying this is an emergency case. 
They did not bother to go back to the Fifth Circuit or seek on bank review or anything. They rushed to the Supreme Court and says, oh, please, Supreme Court, take this case immediately. And the reason why they wanted to do that, Toby, is because Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice think that if this Supreme Court looks at this particular case, given the fact that the Mr. Rahimi, who is the criminal defendant there, appears to be a bad character, then there's a good chance that they may cut back on Second Amendment rights strategically. So that's what's going on. And the reason why I give this big lead up, Toby, is what happened this morning at 9.30 a.m. was the first opportunity for the United States Supreme Court to grant cert in that Rahimi case, which Merrick Garland is begging, please take, please take immediately. And the Supreme Court did not act this morning as of now. So as of now, that case has not been granted cert, which seems to suggest there's a very good chance that this case uh, decision as to whether or not the Supreme Court will heal Rahimi may get pushed off to September, which could be very good for the Second Amendment community because there's other related cases coming up through the system where the plaintiff or the person involved is much more sympathetic than uh, Mr. Rahimi appears to be, which would be a much better vehicle for the Second Amendment community than, again, trying to defend someone who, frankly, does not look very good um, on pa- on his paper record in terms of his behavior. Well, I, I yeah, and you know, it's funny. There's this isn't the first time that case law has come from people who might not be uh, local members at the at the gun club, and, and you know, being at the sharing a table with us at the wild game dinner at the local you know fundraiser for whatever cause you go to. So, uh, but the, that being said, it it still has massive implications for the Second Amendment, even if the guy is you know, from questionable character or not, because I can see why they want to rush it through, because wouldn't you agree that everything would be on the table at that point, red flag law and even, um, you know, some 209A restraining order type of seizure of firearms and everything else. If, If they lose this, there's decades worth of precedent that basically goes out the window and, and they'll no longer be able to, uh, charge people with, um, you know, on being uh, not being able to possess a firearm while running up to the court case. Isn't that what's at the root of all this? Yeah, I mean, look, there's an old saying in law, which is bad facts make bad law. Sometimes judges who are people, too, will may bend over backwards in a particular case to distort the law because perhaps they don't like who's in front of them. I'm not going to mention what's going on with President Trump, but certainly some people have suggested that there's a special standard of who goes after what when it involves President Trump. And whether or not that's true or not, the reality is that prosecutors have a lot of discretion as to how they devote their time and resources, Mm -hmm. and they get to pick and choose their targets in a sense. And you're absolutely right here. Now, what's very interesting, though, Toby, is there's two other cases that are in the pipeline. One is called the Range case. Now, let me just contrast the Rahimi case with the Range case. The Range versus Merrick Garland. So Merrick Garland's also defendant. The Range versus Merrick Garland case, Toby, came out of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. And this just occurred about three weeks ago. The Third Circuit en banc, which means that every single judge on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a big deal, they issued an order that said that a gentleman by the name of Brian Range, who 20 years ago lied on a food stamp application by failing to disclose lawnscaping income. 20 years ago, he pled guilty. 
no prison time, kind of a slap on the wrist. But because technically speaking, Mr. Range pled guilty to a Pennsylvania statute that had the possibility of going to jail for more than two years, that turned him into a quote unquote felon under the federal statute of 18 USC 922 G1. So Range is the logical case for the Supreme Court to take up. But what's interesting is Merrick Garland lost that case about three weeks ago to Mr. Range in a big decision by the Third Circuit. But has Merrick Garland sought an emergency certiorari from the Supreme Court in the Range case? No, he has not. He hasn't acted yet on this because it seems to me that the Department of Justice is rushing Rahimi through because, again, Mr. Rahimi does not look very good on paper. In contrast to Mr. Range, who's a guy 20 years ago, a nonviolent issue, no violence whatsoever connected to any respect to him. 20 years ago, a food stamp, you know, fraud case, a misdemeanor case, and he's lost his gun rights for life, and now he's won. But Merrick Garland has not sought Sir Shiari from the U.S. Supreme Court in the Range case. And I want to mention one other thing. When you look at the federal statute, Toby, that applies to these cases, 18 U.S.C. 922G, there are nine. There are nine categories of types of people that have lose their gun rights uh, if they fall within one of those nine categories. The number one category in terms of the most typical, the most representative, the most numerous type of case under 922G is 922G1. That deals with felons, people with felony records, in possession of a firearm. There are approximately 27,000 cases over a four-year period of people being prosecuted for 922G1. Now, in contrast, the Rahimi case that Merrick Garland is pushing hard is 922G8, I believe. And in the last like year or two, there's been something like 100 or some odd prosecutions under that substatute. So the question is, why is Merrick Garland not taking an emergency appeal in the range case, which he lost, dealing with an issue that comes up literally thousands and thousands of times every year, instead trying to get the Supreme Court to deal with a statute that comes up maybe a 100 times a year, maybe. And we know why, because the particular person involved, Mr. Rahimi, seems a lot more unsympathetic than Mr. Range does out of the Third Circuit. But again, uh, as of this morning, the Supreme Court had an opportunity to grant cert in the Rahimi case. They did not do it as of this morning. Uh, they're going to have one more crack at it, I believe, you know, probably later this week, probably Friday, maybe early next week. Uh, but right now, the Department of Justice, ha- thankfully, has not gotten its way. By the way, even if they do grant cert in Rahimi, it's no guarantee that the Second Amendment community loses that case. But that's not the best vehicle to uh, pursue our rights, as I see it. Yeah, and this this is actually interesting for those of us in Massachusetts because we have a running joke, actually. It's not too funny, but uh, this thing we call a Mr. Felony in this state because if you are charged with a OUI as a first offense and you're convicted of it, it puts you into that same category. It, it's punishable by two and a half years in Massachusetts. So if you are convicted of a first offense, OUI or driving while intoxicated in the state of Massachusetts, you are now a felon for life as far as you lose your gun rights for life. No matter, people say like, oh, well, I'll just move out of state. No, it has nothing to do with Massachusetts. It's your prohibited person for life no matter where you live because the crime you were convicted of was punishable by more than two years in prison. So it's it's a two and a half year uh, prison sentence for first offender uh, OUI. So Something along, I don't know if this would have the same type of ramifications, but 
it sounds like it might, correct? I don't know if that's covered under the same chapter and verse of, uh, it's definitely a 922, whatever, uh, U.S. code that was, but I don't think it's under the exact same, uh, G8 as, as the one you were talking about, but. You no, know, it is exactly that, that the range case dealt with 18 U.S.C. 922 G1, which is the felon in possession. And you're mm. exactly right. If you're convicted of a crime like in Massachusetts that has the potential, the potential of a two year sentence, even though you don't serve a day in prison or jail, two years or more than that technically qualifies as a felony under 18 U.S.C. 922 G1. Shoot, we lost in there. All right, we lost him. We'll get him back on. But we'll be right back after this break, and hopefully we'll continue the conversation with Mark Smith. Uh, You're listening to Rapid Fire, your 2A talk radio uh, show where you can call in and get up-to-the-minute advice. All right, we'll be right back. I'm Toby Lear. for personal protection has never been more popular than it is today. The USCCA can help fortify your home, sharpen your awareness, and develop your defensive plan. Go to uscca.co forward slash rapid fire to sign up. Your family's safety and security is your responsibility. Go to uscca.co forward slash rapid fire to sign up for a USCCA membership and get special training, legal advice, and legal protection you and your family need. Vortex offers the very best optics specifically made for shooters with rugged construction designed for extreme environments. Vortex Optics build quality ensures accurate, reliable, and repeatable performance every time you squeeze the trigger. Add fully multi-coated lenses and nitrogen purging, and you have a quality optic with an extremely reasonable price tag. That is the Vortex difference. Come into Cape Gunworks to see the full line of Vortex Optics today. Welcome back to Rapid Fire, the 2A talk radio show sponsored by Vortex Optics and the USCCA. We're having a fascinating conversation here with Professor Mark Smith, who's an author and Second Amendment lawyer and also content creator who puts out a lot of excellent content to keep us in the know of what's happening in the in the uh, legal world as far as it relates to the Second Amendment. So before the break, we were talking about... Um, the implications of these two cases that uh, one is before the Supreme Court for writ of cert and the other one is a very similar case that isn't up for writ of cert and it all is probably based on that character of the person involved. But uh, you were talking, Mark, about the um, the what we like to call the Mr. Felony. Um, and all I was going to point out about that with the, and I've said it a bunch on this show, but the irony of that um, situation is somebody gets charged with a, uh, OUI or a you know driving while intoxicated first offense, and they get a lawyer that tells them, "Ah, yeah, just plea it, you know, plea out to it because you know it, there's not going to be any real way of getting out of it, or it's not going to be a, uh, it doesn't affect you much. You're going to get your license back in no time." And ironically, they get their license back in no time to drive the automobile that that was the offense in which they were violating. But now they're a prohibited person as far as something as important as their enumerated Second Amendment rights. And I'm not advocating driving while intoxicated. I'm just saying 
that the the bottom line is we give the person permission to go out and do what it was they offended in the first place and now make them a prohibited person for life. That doesn't seem fair or constitutional in any way, shape, or form. That's right. And what's going on here, just to help your viewers and listeners understand this fight um, among the pro-gun and the anti-gun forces, if you will, if you look historically to the time of the founding in 1791, which was the year our Second Amendment was adopted and became effective, the only way one could conceivably lose one's right to bear arms was if you were deemed a danger, a violent danger to society. So that was basically the view. What's happened, though, Toby, is that today's anti-gun forces, the government forces that want greater government control over our private rights, including our right to keep and bear arms, they are arguing in court and in their scholarship that really – the only people that should be entitled entitled to have a firearm or to carry a firearm in public are those that show that they are virtuous, specifically those that show that they respect and uphold and follow the rule of law. Now, of course, uh, we understand, Toby, that the laws are ubiquitous. There are so many laws on the books that no top lawyer could possibly even know them all. If you're an excellent lawyer, mm. there's so many out there, which means in theory, if you jaywalk, right, if you put your garbage in the wrong bin, you put it in the blue recycling bin and not the green recycling bin or something, you have technically violated the law. If you speed Five miles per over the, you know, you go 70 and a 65, you're technically violating the law. So what the anti-gunners are trying to do in court is establish that the only people that are allowed to have firearms are those that are virtuous, which means by their definition, they follow all of society's laws. But again, the Supreme Court has made clear that you go back to the time of our founding when the Second Amendment and the whole Bill of Rights was adopted in 1791, and you laser focus to see are there historical analog laws that would allow you to look you know, allow basically your rights to be taken away. And obviously uh, the standard was, are you a danger to a, to a society? And the examples that, you know, you can debate, these examples get debated. I won't bore you with all the details, Toby, but it's like, for example, you know, Native American warring Indian tribes, you know, you could sort of take guns away from them or not trade guns with them because they were viewed as a danger to society. Uh, Tories that fought for the British uh, on, against the, the American revolutionaries, they were viewed as a danger to society. Um, things like this, but it's actual violent danger is the touchstone here. And that is really what the Third Circuit in the Range case said, is that because Mr. Range, who was convicted 20 years ago of a food stamp violation for failing to disclose, I think, lawnscaping income in his food stamp application, that doesn't show in any respect he's a danger to society. And likewise, Toby, there's the old saying about Martha Stewart. Now, Martha Stewart, right, Martha Stewart was convicted of lying to the FBI, and was a felon, technically speaking, and she's lost her gun rights for life. But why would Martha Stewart lose her gun rights for life? There's no evidence that she's violent to anybody, except maybe when she prunes her roses or something. But there's no violence in Martha Stewart, and yet she's lost her gun rights for life. But again, that's the world the anti-gunners want to live in, where if you violated any law, you are deemed unvirtuous, and thus they can take away your gun rights. It's a major fight going on. Uh, so far, the anti-gunner argument in that in, in that respect has not succeeded, but they're working really hard at it. Yeah, and you, you bring up a good point because they even take it a step further here in Massachusetts, which um, has tried to make an attempt to comply with the uh, New York Serpa v. Bruin case, which 
basically took away the subjectivity or the uh, selectiveness of issuing licenses, but Massachusetts still is clinging to this suitability of, you know, so in other words, the licensing authority is the chief of police, and he's supposed to know the people that live in his town or whatever. And, and so if he, but if he deems you're unsuitable, he can still deny you your license to carry, which I feel flies in the face of the Bruin decision. And, uh, and, but that's exactly what they're, they're clinging, clinging to is they say there's some little nuance in the Bruin decision that opens the door, keeps that a little bit open to, to be able to say that, oh, well, this guy lives in a drug house or this guy lives in an area that the police are called to every once in a while. So therefore he is unsuitable to own and possess firearms. But that's the, you know, I feel the state taking it even further than what you just laid out about the person has been convicted and is now uh, a white collar criminal and therefore a prohibited person. But we take it even further before you've committed the crime. If they think you're unsuitable, they're going to deny you your right to keep and bear arms. Yeah. You know, the NYSERPA versus Bruin, what you're really talking about in that scenario is a right to a license to carry. Now, the Supreme Court in NYSERPA versus Bruin did not specifically they did not specifically make a holding on this. They said as a general matter that shall issue permitting regimes are presumptively constitutional. Now, a shall issue permitting regime, of course, says that if you meet an objective criteria, and this is the key, Toby, an objective criteria, then you get your license, okay, objective. Now, what's going on in several places, and it sounds like it may be happening in Massachusetts, although I'm not specifically familiar with, like, you know, those counties in Massachusetts, what has occurred in parts of the country is that the sheriffs and the police officers and the government officials that have a say over who gets these gun licenses have said, we need to conduct these background checks and these interviews and all this stuff over a period of time. But several courts, including a district court in New Jersey by Judge Renee Marie Bum, came out and specifically said that that gives rise to discretion, subjective discretion on the part of the licensing authority. And NYSERPA versus Bruin makes it very clear that the criteria has to be objective and not subjective. And if you start interviewing people and assessing their mental health records and their social media accounts, which New York State tried to impose on these licensing officials, what are you asking them to do? You're basically asking these government officials to make subjective determinations about each individual that applies for a license. And NYSERPA versus Bruin made it clear that the criteria has to be objective in terms of who uh, gets a license and whatnot. And the Supreme Court, uh, I think, is going to pay careful attention to this if these licensing processes get abused. Because the Supreme Court in Nicerba versus Bruin specifically said, if these processes get abused by virtue of taking too long or becoming too expensive or something like that, they specifically said that could give rise to a Second Amendment violation and we may come back and fix it, is what the Supreme Court said in Bruin quite clearly. Yeah, and I'd love to get your input on this too. Like, So in, in Massachusetts, we can't even purchase a gun without a license to carry or a firearm, a handgun without a license to carry. So we can't just go in with a driver's license as an ID. You have to have gone through the process to get either an FID card or an LTC. FID card allows you to get a rifle or a shotgun and and a license to carry enables you to purchase a handgun. And it's a one to three month process, costs you a couple hundred bucks between the class you're going to take and the fee you're going to pay at the at the PD and get fingerprinted, photographed, background checked, and then wait for a result from the state and whatnot. So um, plus the whole suitability part plays into it. If the chief doesn't think you're suitable, he can deny you right there. Although now I think under the 
Bruin in the post Bruin world, he'll have to give a reason why in court if if he does deny you. And I, so I don't know if that's happening or not. However, um, what this what this really begs is I've been you know looking at that case in uh, it's the Murdoch v Pennsylvania 1943 case, which says basically that um, you cannot charge a fee, sell a license, or a permit for the free exercise of an enumerated constitutional right. I'm paraphrasing it, but it was basically saying you can't sell a license, you can't charge a fee, and you can't uh, sell a permit for the free exercise of your enumerated constitutionally protected federal rights. So I'm wondering how that's never been applied in a Second Amendment case. That was a First Amendment case, but even still, it doesn't differentiate in that that it's specific to the First Amendment. It says any of your rights. And uh, so how is that constitutional for a state like Massachusetts to to sell a license, charge a fee, and, you know, delay your constitutionally protected right to keep and bear arms by one to three months? If, if justice delayed is justice denied, isn't that the same with rights? If my rights are delayed, you know, it would be one thing if you could walk into town hall, plunk down 10 bucks for the cost of the actual plastic license and they handed you one and now you walk out but it's not like that it's a very prohibitive process and uh for a while there was towns that outright denied it they just wouldn't issue it now fortunately that 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 may issue has gone away and now we're a shall issue state like uh but still do you have any uh input on that whole side of things and how they're getting away with being able to even sell a license for for a constitutionally protected right yeah, I think there's several things to keep in mind. The first thing and is a big picture, Toby, is we have to keep in mind that Nicerpa versus Bruin is basically one year old. Mm-hmm. One, it's right. That's it's very young, and uh, courts and governments are trying to get into a line with this. There's certainly blue states, probably Massachusetts, one of them that don't necessarily want to line up with. Uh, Bruin. Uh, but, you know, a lot of that is happening. So as a general matter, we have to keep in mind that the law, especially when you're dealing with high end Supreme Court law, constitutional law, it moves incrementally, I mean, case by case by case. So you do one case at a time and those that body of case law builds up over time. So a lot of these questions you're raising are good one are good ones. It's just they haven't had a chance to get to those cases because there's other kind of more pressing cases, right. such as this 922 case. So that's the first big picture. Number two, there is a distinction in the law between a fee and a tax. A fee historically is viewed as uh, you have to cover the cost to the government of a process. So, for example, if to hold a parade down Fifth Avenue in New York will cost the city $5,000, making up a number here, then it is okay for them to charge you $5,000 for that parade permit because that's what it's going to cost the city to administer that But if it's a tax, which means that it's a sum of money over and above the cost of providing that service, right? So if it costs $10 for someone to go to Yosemite Park, right? You see what I'm saying? That's okay. But if they charge $1,000, which is over and above the cost of uh, providing that service, it's a tax. If it is a tax, Toby, it is indeed unconstitutional if you are taxing a constitutional right. So there is several cases that speak to this. Murdoch is an early example, but I think the better one is the U.S. Supreme Court case in 1983, a case called Minneapolis Star. In Minneapolis Star, the case, it was a state tax on ink, 
on ink Mm. with respect to newspaper printing. So the Minneapolis Star sued saying that this is a tax on our First Amendment right to free speech and our First Amendment right to freedom of the press because we use ink to print our newspapers, which allows us to express our speech rights and our press rights. Mm. And the U.S. Supreme Court says, indeed, a tax targeting a constitutional right is not permitted. There's also a related case, uh, a separate case from the 60s, uh, dealing with the Virginia Board of Elections that specifically said that a $1.50 poll tax on the right to vote was unconstitutional because you had the constitutional right to vote. So there's at least two modern-day precedents that say a tax that targets a constitutional right, which would, of course, include the fundamental right to keep and bear arms in the text of the Bill of Rights, um, would be unconstitutional. And again, I think that if the Supreme Court were to hear such a case, taxes would be deemed unconstitutional as to whether or not a fee for processing a license is unconstitutional. That's a closer call. But if it's a tax... Yes, that would not be permitted under current Supreme Court precedent. But again, uh, that doesn't mean that blue states like Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, California can't play games potentially and uh, and try to get around this and say, hey, you know, what is the Supreme Court going to do? You know, five years from now, maybe they'll slap us down. But in the meantime, we can get away with it. And again, I can't speak for the motivations of a lot of these blue state uh, officials when it comes to their right to keep their arms. Obviously, there's a lot in those states that don't like it, don't want us to have it. And, um, you know, that's just the reality of it. And, and, you know, they'll get away with as much as possible for as long as possible in a lot of these states um, until the courts stop. them. Yeah. And do you think there's any merit to the um, argument that like interstate commerce, whereas like, you know, like in Massachusetts, there was an attempt by our attorney general at the time or the governor or somebody in the state wanted to make it so that uh, – convenience stores or whatever had to buy milk from Massachusetts-based dairy farmers as a, re- as a you know, bone to throw to them for, you know, being in the state. So they wanted to just do business in the state. And there was out-of-state dairy farmers that said, hey, we have this thing called interstate commerce and you can't, you can't mandate that they have to buy it from your state. There's this, you know, full faith and credit of, uh, you know, interstate commerce and whatnot. And, and, doesn't the same argument apply then if it, if we're talking about a you can't ban, you can't mandate that people uh, buy guns only from uh, Massachusetts or whatever and or at least don't have some sort of legal protection if they travel here from out of state with their arm that they're legally able to own in their home state. So I don't know if that interstate commerce and I don't want to totally confuse people and get nerdy and geek out here, but isn't it kind of the same argument? If you can't restrict milk to one state, how the heck can you restrict firearms to one state? You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I think there's a couple of different, you know, types of legal cases we see that speak to that. Again, I would say all these are kind of early challenges because, again, the Supreme Court and the courts, you know, there's other things that sort of take priority by virtue of which is the most important kind of cases. But you're absolutely right. For example, the, the law that says you are only allowed to take possession of a handgun uh, in the state where you are a resident is an example of this. Like why, you know, if I go to California tomorrow, 
I'm allowed to go to any synagogue or church or mosque that I want to, right? right? I can stand on the street corner in California. I'm not a California resident, thank God. And I can stand out there and I can exercise my First Amendment rights. If I'm arrested by the police, I have the benefit of my Fourth Amendment rights and my Fifth Amendment rights and my Sixth and Seventh and Eighth Amendment rights and so on. Right. Um, so why is it that if I happen to travel to California, my Second Amendment rights are not equally respected. And I think that is a fair point. And why can't I buy a gun in a state where I'm not a resident? I'm allowed to buy all sorts of other things, including newspapers and go to church in places where I'm not a resident. So yeah, I think these are all legitimate constitutional questions, Toby. And again, I just go back to there's a practical reality of the situation where, remember, the Supreme Court is different in that not just the Supreme Court, but all courts are unique in that they cannot reach out Mm. to solve a problem. They can only handle the cases that come before them. So if a particular issue they recognize as an issue, but never actually gets before them, there's nothing a court can do. This makes them dramatically different than, let's say, uh, a president, a governor, a legislature that can flag an issue and then go address it Courts can't do that. They just have to wait and see what comes their way, which is why at the start of this conversation, I explained Merrick Garland is pushing really hard to have that Rahimi case heard by the Supreme Court. And at the same time, other cases that appear to be more important for the national community and the Second Amendment community and beyond, uh, those seem to be slow walked by the same Department of Justice. Again, it goes back to if the case is not before the Supreme Court or any court, well, there's nothing a court can do because unlike other branches of government, Toby, uh, courts cannot reach out and grab something and deal with it. It has to come to them uh, on behalf of other people. Oh, that's a great point. And uh, I think it's worth mentioning that today is the 15th anniversary of the Heller decision. And uh, and there's going to be people like Dick Hellers in the world or Rich Hellers that can go and bring these cases. Uh, and I really like the breakdown that you did. And I wonder if you could speak to us a little bit about this, um, how the Bruin case was really just a clarification and a kind of paint by number for the lower courts to follow yep. as far as the Heller case. Maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about that because I, I, I think it's worth mentioning on the anniversary of the Heller decision uh, for, you know, such a landmark case. And uh, you did a great job of breaking that down. And I'd love it if you could uh, help us understand that a little better. Sure. Let's just start with first principles. We have a United States Constitution that was adopted in 1791 at the insistence of various states. A Bill of Rights, which is the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, was adopted. The second amendment was the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. We know this. Keep in mind that this has been said repeatedly, including in the Heller case, that the right to keep and bear arms is not created. It's not created by the second amendment. It is codified. By the Second Amendment. What that means is the Supreme Court has specifically said that the right to keep bear arms was a right that pre-existed the Bill of Rights. Mm. So the Second Amendment is adopted in 1791, codifying the pre-existing right to keep and bear arms. So the question becomes, Toby, what does the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed mean? Well, the Supreme Court in Heller in 2008 really is quite simple. They said, well, we're going to start with the text of the Bill of Rights, the text of the Second Amendment. And we're going to define these various terms. We're going to define, and they and they do so. And the terms they use to define these, and this is important, they don't use 21st century definitions, although the reality is they're kind of the same. What they do is we're going to go, they go back to the year of our Lord 1791 when the Second Amendment was adopted. And they says, what did the people at the time of the Second Amendment's adoption understand was being codified? 
And the way they did that is say, well, the best evidence is what did the text mean? So the right to keep means, in 1791, to keep, to have, to possess. What does the right to bear mean? It means to carry. It means that today mean, meant that in, in 1791. What does an arm mean? Well, an arm in 1791, the same as today, using dictionaries of the time, means anything that can be used offensively or defensively to strike someone, uh, including but not limited to, by the way, body armor. That was Samuel Johnson's definition. Samuel Johnson was an English lexicographer in the 18th century. It's basically the same definition of arms today. Uh, And obviously that would include firearms. So basically the Supreme Court in Heller looked at the text of the Second Amendment. They defined every term. After they defined every term, they says, okay, now we know what's conceptually covered. And here in the Heller case, remember, the District of Columbia had banned the possession of handguns. So the question in Heller specifically was, can the District of Columbia ban handguns under the Second Amendment? So after defining all the terms in the text of the Second Amendment, the Supreme Court then says, is there any historical analog laws in 1791 that says that a government could ban handguns or any type of arms? And they concluded basically the answer was No, when it comes to bearable arms, they looked at all the various historical analogs and they said, yeah, there's basically no firearms that can be banned. There's a sort of an exception for what are known as dangerous and unusual. But they said that obviously handguns are not unusual because everyone owns them in America. So they can't be dangerous and unusual. So any exception cannot apply here. So basically, the reason it's a a two-step process, if you think about it, Toby, they look at the text of the Second Amendment as defined by the Supreme Court in Heller, and then they ask, is there any historical precedence at the time of the founding, not today, not in the 1930s, not in the 1940s, not in the late 18th, not in the late 19th century, in 1791, at the time of our founding, is there any historical analog laws? Now, what does that mean exactly? So here would be an example of an historical analog law that existed in 1791 that would not violate the Second Amendment, yet touch fingers with firearms, specifically, If you murder someone with a firearm, Toby, today, and you say, I have a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms, and therefore I'm allowed to murder someone, the Supreme Court would say no, because if you go back to the time of the founding, and by the way, this is what Heller says, go back to the time of the founding, there were laws that prohibited Americans from using firearms to commit murder, to commit rape to commit robbery, to commit what are known as malum in se crimes, which means evil in and of themselves crimes. Mm. And basically the Supreme Court says, well, obviously, if there's a historical analog law that prevented you from using firearms in a particular way at the time of the founding, well, that could carry forward today because that teaches us what the founders thought about the scope of the rights and how far it went out. So that would be an example of a modern day law that could not be struck down on Second Amendment grounds, the, you know, the right to use a firearm to commit murder is not protected by the Second Amendment. And the reason why a court would conclude that is not because they make it up or because it's common sense, although it is. Uh, they look at the history, uh, history of the United States and say, yeah, there were laws on the books in 1791, so you couldn't do it. Therefore, that means the founding fathers that adopted the Second Amendment would not view that kind of behavior as protected under the Second Amendment, and we won't protect it now in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. So what happened really is in Heller, it laid out the very easy process. Look at the text. Supreme Court defined the text. If the text is implicated, the burden shifts to the government to come forward with historical analog laws. If the government cannot do it, the law struck, struck, is struck down. In Heller, there was no analog laws that justified the banning of any kind of arm, including handguns. So that law was struck down. Now, what happened between 2008 of Heller, Toby, And 2022 is a bunch of the lower courts who are actually referred to under the Constitution, Article 3, as 
inferior courts. That's actually what they're called in the Constitution. That's not me calling them that. Inferior courts are the lower courts. Between 2008 and 2022, all these inferior courts, lower courts, were simply not applying Heller's text and then historical analog methodology correctly. So in Bruin, the Supreme Court says enough is enough. We are going to take you lower courts that have misapplied the Second Amendment to the woodshed. Mm. We're going to teach you with a paint-by-number approach exactly how you should do this kind of reasoning. So really, the Bruin case in 2022 is nothing more than an elaboration on the exact same methodology that Heller did for interpreting the Second Amendment and applying it in 2008. It's just in 2022, they did it in greater detail because they were fed up with lower courts, the inferior courts, failing to do their job. And that was a big part of that Bruin decision. They did this paint-by-numbers thing like, hey, Get this right. We're going to lay it out for you. Don't play dumb ever again because we've now laid it out for you in Bruin. All they really did, though, was elaborated in, in, in the same way that they did in Heller, no different except in greater detail. They didn't alter Heller in any particular way. Uh, a firearm cannot be banned, for example, if it's in common use by Americans for lawful purposes. That is still the law of the land. Heller is still good law. It's just Bruin was about, again, spanking those lower courts and teaching them to do it right going forward. Yeah, and unfortunately for those of us in Massachusetts, it's going to take a while and also more court battles in order to to regain our rights that have been lost and have been misapplied based on uh, what you just so eloquently laid out. Like, we have this whole pistol roster and we have this attorney general's regulations. And so certain guns like a Glock, for instance, I can't purchase a Glock, which is the most common and ordinary gun and handgun in use today uh, because it doesn't meet the attorney general's regulations and and so uh there's plus i can only buy guns that are on a certain approved weapons roster list uh which is i i feel completely unconstitutional and they've they've been getting away with murder if in my opinion as since uh heller and up until now and hopefully it'll go away since the brewer uh bruin clarification on it that you you pointed out is is you know the only guns that they deem i can have is is what i'm able to to buy in Massachusetts. And I feel like it's been a total, uh, this, uh, I don't know what they call it from a legal sense, but they had the two-step approach of, you know, it's what the legislature's passed and what the people want. So therefore we can violate your rights. Uh, and, and I love how, uh, justice Thomas put it and said that two-step approach is one step too many, you know, (laughs) it's, it just made it so simple. Even a child should be able to understand it, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I think it's very important for your listeners and viewers to understand what that two-step approach, because I want to give you some buzzwords that if you hear these buzzwords, I don't care who tells you this, unless they sit on the Supreme court, you mark my words. If you hear the following words, you run for the hills if you support the right to keep mirrors. If you hear the phrase tears of scrutiny, if you hear the phrase strict scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny or any kind of word with the word scrutiny in it, you run away. Because let me tell you what that means. During the liberal judicial activist period of the last 50 years, going back, you know, sort of before this current court, tears of scrutiny was a doctrine that was literally made up by the U.S. Supreme Court when it was in the hands of sort of progressive liberals. Mm. And what tiers of scrutiny means is that, yes, we find that you, Toby, have a right to free speech. You have a right to keep and bear arms. You have various fundamental rights. We agree. However, there are instances where if we, the government courts, conclude that your rights should be subservient 
or give way to a compelling, powerful government interest as we government judges say it should, then it doesn't matter that your rights are being violated. It's okay. So what's been going on between 2008 and 2022, the way these courts, these inferior lower courts, uh, were doing this is they applied this tiers of scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny balancing test. And they says, yeah, these modern-day gun control laws do touch fingers with the Second Amendment, they violate the Second Amendment, whatever. But the truth is, when we balance the good of the law, the government interest in the law against the fundamental right of Americans, we always are going to conclude that the government wins because that's just the way it's going to go down. And the Supreme Court in 2022, Bruin, Again, reaffirming Heller says you cannot do that. This is a his, this is a textual test followed by historical analog review. It has nothing to do with the good and the bad of guns. So whenever your viewers and listeners are debating the good and the bad of guns, which of course guns are a powerful force and a force for good, which is why we surround our political elites, our financial elites, our religious elites, uh, our Hollywood elites, our royal elites with you know Harry and Meghan. When we surround them basically with people with guns to protect their lives and that's perfectly fine, but ordinary Americans should have that uh, protection as well. So we know guns are good because if guns didn't save lives from bad people, then why does the president of the United States surround himself with men with guns? Obviously, guns serve a social productive purpose, but that's irrelevant because remember, Justice Scalia said in Heller that the balancing of interests uh, between the good and the bad of guns already occurred. It's already occurred. It occurred in the year of our Lord, 1791. That was the balance struck between the good and the bad of guns, the good and the bad of free speech, the good and the bad of warrantless searches, blah, 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 under the, for, under the Bill of Rights. That was struck in 1791. And if you don't like it, there's a process to try to amend it using Article 5 processes. And remember, there's 27 amendments today to the United States Constitution. So there have been 27 times that the U.S. Constitution has been amended. So if somebody doesn't like guns and wants to try to amend the Constitution to get rid of guns, well, have at it. You can try the 28th Amendment, which Gavin Newsom is uh, proposing, although, of course, we know it won't work because we already have 27 states and growing a permitless carry in the country right now. uh, And people have really seen through the lies about guns uh, because, well, frankly, you know, government is not going to be there to protect you 99.9% of the time. uh, Because if they were there to protect you, well, we wouldn't have these various criminality, this criminal conducts and these terrible events that we see all across the country. Mm. Yeah, well said. And, you know, in a, someone from, I call it behind the lines here in Massachusetts that lives in, a, <laughs> in an area that's extremely infringed upon, uh, whether it be assault weapons ban or mag capacity ban or what gun I can and can't buy or, you know, some enumerated list of guns or some attorney general's regulations. Uh, I think that Two things are possible. One is that lower courts or inferior courts, as you pointed out, in some cases will continue to violate the whole Bruin decision. And in other cases, they'll be ordered to, um, and I hope to say and see that all infringements days are numbered and that our rights will be fully restored in this post-Bruin era. Um, and what is your feeling on that? Like, obviously, it's going to take time and it's going to take money and it's going to take a concentrated effort of people who are willing to be plaintiffs and, you know, organizations that are willing to fund them. Uh, but what's your estimate on this? Is this going to be a protracted battle over a long period of time that's going to cost millions of dollars and take 10, 15, 20 years? Or is it do you think that the dam will break and we'll start to see? the Supreme Court weigh in on a lot of these cases and uh, 
and maybe we'll see some restitution of our rights that have been lost. Well, let me answer that question sort of with a big picture sort of point of view, Toby. Um, because our law moves at the Supreme Court, they only hear, you know, 50 to you know 100 cases a year. They don't hear a lot of cases. It moves incrementally case by case. And frankly, not as fast as a lot of us in the Second Amendment community would like. But this is the system we have. This is the system we have to contend with. And by the way, this is very important. It may sound like it's disconnected, but it's not. Whenever your, 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 your viewers uh, and, and listeners are talking about and listening to uh, attacks on Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito and on the Supreme Court and their legitimacy, keep in mind that one of the things that's going on here is an attempt to try to turn the Supreme Court in some way against the Second Amendment and other various interpretations of the Constitution. And there are a lot of these, I, in my view, um, I think a lot of courts are slow-walking Second Amendment-related cases because they're hopeful. They're hoping that Joe Biden or some Democrat will become the president again and we'll have an opportunity to potentially replace some of the older justices, which could potentially include Justice Alito, could include Justice Thomas. One never knows uh, how things play out. Uh, But there's no doubt in my view that one of the anti-gun strategies is to hope and pray over time. uh, Another four years of the Biden administration will be able to change the composition of the Supreme Court in a way that's far more friendly to the progressive agenda, which would include, among other things, a dramatic cutback on our right to keep and bear arms to try to bring it back to an era where courts would simply not enforce the Second Amendment and it became a second-class citizen. That there is no doubt in my view that that is a big part of the agenda of trying to attack the Supreme Court as is currently constituted in the mainstream press because the goal is either to change the composition of the Supreme Court by expanding it through, uh, you know, uh, packing the court or simply waiting for people to retire or leave the court in other ways. Uh, but, you know, let us not lose sight of that. So the reason why I bring this up, Toby, and answering your question is, if you want to tell me how long it will take to get where we need to be, it's going to be a big part of what does the court look like in, you know, three, four, five, six years from now. Is it going to be the same exact court we're seeing now? Well, I think that would probably be pretty good for the Second Amendment. If it's a different court full of Gavin Newsom or Joe Biden appointees, well, it's going to be a heavy lift, shall we say. And my last question for you is we're running out of time, and I appreciate all your time today. I know uh, it's extremely generous of you to, to come on the show for this long. And uh, the one last thing I would say is, from a layman, I was a little disappointed at the end of the Bruin case that, um, uh, and I know it's ultimately going to be good, but all the cases that got GVR'd down to the lower courts to make them in compliance or in line with the Bruin outcome, uh, some of those will affect just the districts that, as far as I understand it, uh, like say the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, that whole district, and and I wish they had just ruled on them all and said, you know, all right, these are obviously not in line with Bruin, so therefore the we vacate their um, their decisions and now they are ruled unconstitutional and therefore moot or whatever. But instead, they remanded them all back to get in line which doesn't necessarily affect everybody in the country, if I understand it correctly. Um, and I wish that, that they had just fixed it instead of sending it back to the courts, which to me sets up this long time journey back through the from the district to the Court of Appeals back up to the Supreme Court, potentially, correct? Yeah, I mean, again, you're absolutely right. And the way to understand the U.S. Supreme Court is, Yes, they are there to decide cases, but an equally important job of theirs is to teach lower courts 
the process by which lower courts, the quote-unquote inferior courts under Article Three of the Constitution, handle cases. Because the Supreme Court can't take every case in America. There's just not enough bandwidth there. Sure. So one big thing the Supreme Court does in all these various cases, they don't, only, they don't just tell you who wins the case, which, of course, is very important, especially to the parties. They also explain the methodology that lower courts can follow in similar cases in the future. So in many respects, the court, the Supreme Court itself, views itself as a teacher or as a CEO of a company, and they basically set the guidelines in teaching the lower courts, and then they send it back and they basically say, follow what we taught you in these cases, and you do the heavy lifting in these cases following our guidance. And if you get it wrong, then they're going to bring it on back and we're going to have to deal with it again. But we really want the lower courts to get it right. In fact, the Supreme Court would prefer that all the lower courts get it right because it reduces the workload on the Supreme Court. But as you know, there are obstinate judges and obstinate courts that simply either because they're not capable of getting it right or because they are feigning ignorance, or because they want to play games, whatever it is, there's no shortage of courts and judges, uh, especially on the left-wing side of America, as I see it, because it's very easy to be a left-wing judge in America because you are outcome-oriented. You don't care about the... No one can tell me what is Ruth Bader Ginsburg jurisprudential philosophy other than the left wins in America, right? And uh, the reality is it's a lot easier to be a left-wing judge in America because you're really just ruling in favor of a particular outcome because you think government is a force for good. You work at a court, which is part of the government. You think by doing good as the court, as a judge, you are advancing the progressive agenda. You're doing good for the country. That is their philosophy of judging. It's much different than conservatives um, or an originalist, which are trying to get it right. They're trying to apply the law as it was written, as it was understood. And that's why sometimes you see situations where a quote-unquote conservative justice or judge will come out in a way that seems like adverse to the conservative political agenda But you never see that as a general matter with the left-wing judges doing that because, again, the left-wing judges are motivated by outcomes uh, and advancing, quote-unquote, progressive goals, and conservatives are trying to get the law right. Mm. And that's why you do see a little bit more disparity with conservatives coming out with liberal outcomes than you see liberals coming out with conservative outcomes. There's a reason for that. Mm, Great answer, by the way. And, uh, Mark, I want to thank you for joining our show today. It was awesome and very good uh, discussion. I'd love to do it again sometime sure. if you're up for it. And uh, how can people follow your work and find your books? Yeah, well, you can follow me on uh, YouTube. I have a YouTube channel called the Four Boxes Diner. Second Amendment channel, Four Boxes Diner, refers to the Four Boxes of American Liberty. And I talk all about like super inside baseball uh, of the law and the Second Amendment and try to give you the information to make you the smartest person in the room. And I include, even if you have fancy judges and fancy lawyers and fancy professors in that room, I want to make you smarter than they are. And I think I can do that. And I try to do that with my YouTube channel, the Four Boxes Diner. And you can follow me on Twitter at, at Four Boxes Diner as well. Awesome. Thanks so much man and we'll talk to you again and uh thank you for tuning in and remember the show ends here but you can always tune in at rapidfireradio.us and give us a call at 508-444-2120 keep up the good fight support your local community be an advocate for responsible gun ownership and together as americans we can overcome anything i'm toby leary thanks so much this is rapid fire we'll see you next time